Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Sachs' Essay Today podcast. My name is Michelle Botcher, and I'm an associate professor at Clemson University. I'm also your host for this program. Today, I'm pleased to have Judy Jarvis, PhD candidate in the higher education program at Rutgers University and executive director of the Office of Student Engagement at Princeton University as part of our podcast. Judy, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Thanks so much for having me, Michelle. I'm so glad to be with you. We're going to talk about work and career and your research and all of that. But before we go that direction, can you tell people a little bit about who you are outside of work? Hobbies, things you're reading, watching, listening to, whatever you're interested in sharing. Yes. So I would say first and foremost, you know, two of my priorities are making an eating pie and um, playing and coaching Ultimate Frisbee. So I try to do a lot of those things. And this summer I've gotten to read a lot. I was really interested in uh, Burnham Woods um, was a good gripping book. Uh, Thin Girls was another good gripping book, both nothing to do with higher education. So um, thanks for asking. So I have to ask, do you have a favorite pie? Okay. Sour cherry pie is number one, but it's so hard to get sour cherries. So Mm. it's only if it's done well, you know, cherry pie done well. And then peach is next because peach can be done well a lot of different ways. Awesome. I won't argue on either account there. So tell us a little bit about yourself, your journey into higher education, and maybe highlight a few key people. Yes. So I always loved being in college. So I was obsessed with being in college. I was completely oversubscribed as a student, but it never occurred to me to be a higher education professional. I sort of thought, oh, well, everyone in higher ed is a professor. I don't, I was kind of missing that there's a lot of, you know, there's people in residential life, they're in identity centers, they're in, you know, international student services. So I worked, I in radio. And then I worked in social justice related evaluation consulting. And it was there that I delved into a lot of LGBT specific work. So working for the Transgender Law Center, working for um, a lot of different nonprofits here in the, the Glide Foundation in San Francisco. And it made me realize I really wanted to work with LGBTQ students. And I try to think, how does one do that? And in K-12, you have to work with parents, which I did not want to do. <laughs> so I thought, wait a second, higher education. So I came around to that and I worked in LGBT campus centers for eight years. And now I've shifted. I'm doing kind of generalist student affairs at my research. I'm in the PhD program at Rutgers, as you mentioned. My research focuses on LGBTQ student campus experiences. So I got there. It all kind of makes sense when you look back. And key people, I just have to say how incredible the Rutgers higher education faculty has been just the mentorship that certainly gotten from my advisor, Dr. Abelia Hernandez, but also from other professors. So Ralph Gelati, who does crisis leadership, uh, Barbara Lee, we're talking about law. She does higher education law. So I just feel like through and through every course I've taken at Rutgers, the student, the, the professors have been so invested in the students. And so I've just been incredibly grateful for that. Wonderful. Thank you so much for letting us get to know a little bit about you as we now go and talk about this great article that you wrote. So you recently published an article with Saxa in the College Student Affairs Journal, and the title is 
the changing legal landscape for LGBTQIA students in higher education, Title IX, religious freedom of expression, and the special relationship doctrine. You know, this is impossible because you love what you write about and it's never a short answer, but can you give just sort of a quick overview of what you learned through the research and maybe a few highlights, and then we'll dig a little bit deeper as we go. Yes. So for this article, I decided to take a close look at three different legal areas that I felt currently impact LGBTQIA students or will likely impact LGBTQIA students soon. And I'll say this, I wrote this before uh, Roe v. Wade was overturned. So I probably would have written about that. So that might be another article. But my goal really was to summarize key case law in each of those areas for a student affairs practitioner audience. So not for a legal audience. So drawing from legal documents, I was reading all different different cases and analysis, but trying to make it understandable to practitioners and then also offer recommendations to practitioners about what the implications are of current and future litigation in these areas. And there's especially big differences whether you work at a state institution where different sort of federal laws apply to you versus a private institution. So trying to kind of get into those complexities. And then this is the point where it's important to say I'm not a lawyer. So it's, I think that it's so important that academics and student affairs practitioners dig into legal cases, that legal cases, they affect us all. And so we need to understand them even if we're not lawyers. So I have worked, as I mentioned, in LGBTQ campus centers. And throughout my time in that work, I've seen how the law has impacted queer and trans students and employees in so many different ways. One of the biggest ways is creating fear and confusion. So people not understanding what does this law mean? It's in my home state, but it's not in the state that I am here in school. Or is this, you know, law about or this this Trump executive order about trans people in the military? What does that mean if I want to go into the military or if I have family in the military? You know, just creating a lot of confusion and then a lot of times queer and trans students will come to their identity centers on campuses to try to make sense of what's going on. And I, I felt like as a practitioner, I was often just patching together my own knowledge from news stories. Like, I think this means this now as a PhD candidate, I have the ability, you know, I have the mentors, I have the resources to be able to delve in and analyze legal opinions myself and try to offer more clear and non-jargony access. So what I do in the article, I give an overview of trends in case law related to LGBTQ college students. So kind of what's the last 30 years? What's the overview? And then I go into detail about how Title IX may increasingly be a way that LGBTQIA students who have experienced discrimination in colleges and universities, whether it's from professors, whether it's from other students, whether it's from the administration, administration. Title IX may be a way that now those students may have some legal recourse in a way that it really wasn't even, you know, in the 90s. So I go into a lot about Title IX. I then discuss how rulings on religious freedom of expression are really in tension with some of LGBTQ students' hard-won rights on campus, and that that's a very active space of law right now. That where things, where decisions are kind of ping-ponging, sometimes going towards really conservative, um, usually Christian plaintiffs are winning. Other times, it's LGBTQ students or colleges that are winning. Then the third area is I define and explain what the special relationship doctrine is and how it might be applied to LGBTQIA students in mental health crisis. So those are kind of the three big areas of the article. 
Awesome. You've touched on this in just sort of telling your um, story, your areas of work throughout your career, but what what drew you to this topic? And maybe additionally, this way of engaging with this topic, like what was it where you're like, hey, I have a contribution to make and this is where I'm going to put the energy Yes, yeah, so I knew I wanted my scholarly area of focus to be the campus experiences of LGBTQIA students. And in particular, my dissertation is going to be more about crisis leadership related to LGBTQ students. But there's just been so much happening in the last year, two years, five years, 10 years in the in legal arenas related to queer and trans people generally. And some of those have been positive, um, you know, marriage equality, the Bostock case that we'll talk about a little bit later about employment discrimination. But a lot of them have been very negative, especially as related to transgender people and their ability to move freely and use uh, public accommodations and to uh, have accommodations that affirm their their gender identity. So given that, I wanted to get a better grip on all of the implications of law for myself, and I wanted to be able to explain it to students and colleagues. I wanted to know how scared to be about certain things or how not scared to be, you know, just that you have these floating fears and the law can be so difficult to understand. So that that was a motivating factor. And then in addition, one of my mentors at Rutgers, who I mentioned before, Professor Barbara Lee, she's a lawyer and a higher ed law expert. And she encouraged me to work towards publishing a piece in this area. She felt like there really isn't enough analysis of LGBTQ related case law. And I didn't know that, you know, you sort of think, oh, I'm not an expert. So someone else is probably covering this. But I took her higher ed law class and writing a little bit on this topic. She really helped me realize that my perspective as a former LGBTQ center director could help me analyze court cases and could kind of bring together those perspectives. So I I remain just very grateful to her and to her mentorship throughout this process, because sometimes you need that external perspective to say, oh, no, this is good. You know, this is something that people need to understand because I sometimes mistake things for, well, I just I want to understand this for myself. So that was sort of the process of getting to how do I elevate this? Well, and she literally wrote the book on so much of the legal stuff in our world. When the person who wrote the book says, you might want to publish on that, that's um, probably good advice to attend to. So uh, I'm glad she made that recommendation. One other quick question before we start to delve into these a little bit more. As a writer and an editor, I know that there are things that you want to include that really matter that you're excited about, but word limit is a reality. So are there things you had to cut that this is a chance for you to still sort of put some of that, whether it's information or things to think about sort of into the world? Are there, are there things that didn't make it into your article? Thanks for asking that, Michelle, because that is really such a tough part because you, you know, if you're writing about something you're obsessed with, <laughs> there's going to be more that needs to be edited down. And so in the in the early stages of this article, I actually included more on cases from the K-12 space mm-hmm. because there are more of them. There's more litigation about discrimination that students are experiencing or parents suing school districts about trans students. And I didn't include it because 
because I wanted to make the, the focus be really higher education. But there's actually a number of recent cases where judges have ruled in favor of trans high school students who have alleged discrimination because they were barred from using locker rooms and bathroom facilities that align with their gender. And I'll give two examples. So one was in Wisconsin and one was in Pennsylvania, not necessarily places that you would think of as, you know, uh, putting all their pro-trans out there, but I was very happy to read these. And I really, I'm going to quote from what the judges wrote um, in favor of the plaintiffs, because I think it's it's important. So it, the one in Wisconsin was, uh, there was a trans boy named Ash Whitaker, who was barred by his school district from using the boys' bathroom, and he sued the school district. So the case was called Whitaker versus Kenosha Unified School District. This was in 2017. The court ruled for Ash, and they wrote, quote, the school district has failed to provide any evidence of how the preliminary injunction will harm it or any of its students or parents. The harms identified by the school district are all speculative and based on conjecture, whereas the harms to Ash are well-documented and supported by the record, end quote. Then the other example was in Pennsylvania, and this time it was the parents and students, parents and students who sued the school district because they were accommodating a transgender student's needs. So this case was called Doe versus Boyertown Area School District. This was one year later than the Kenosha case in 2018. And the court wrote, quote, the presence of transgender students in the locker and restrooms is no more offensive to constitutional or Pennsylvania law privacy interests than the presence of other students who are not transgender, nor does their presence infringe on the plaintiff's rights under Title IX. And I just thought the words of the court in both of these areas are still kind of important for practitioners to hear, for higher ed lawyers to hear, for just the general public to, to absorb, that in case after case, the court makes clear that transgender students' use of a bathroom is a basic human need. Transgender students are not threatening, they're not harmful, uh, or no more so than their cisgender peers, but the harms to transgender students who are prevented from using bathrooms is more significant than somebody's parents' discomfort or somebody's disagreement. And I just really appreciated the language from these courts. Um, I felt that they were very trans affirming. And I think we need that, especially now we need to hear some clear, you know, unambiguous affirmation of the existence of trans kids, the importance of trans kids, and the importance of their education, which is what these are about, you know, being able to use a bathroom is like a base need for you to be able to attain your education. So they didn't make it in the piece, but if I ever do a K-12 analysis, they certainly will. And I think just we have to get those heartening moments where we can in this challenging legal landscape. Absolutely. K-12 is not separate from higher ed. We're very closely intertwined. So, well, yes. thank you for sharing that. I, I appreciate those insights. Let's talk about the first part of the article a little bit and a couple of cases that you focus on. Two of the landmark cases, one is Bostock v. Clayton County, and the other is Grimm v. Gloucester County, and they're both from 2020. So could you give an overview of those cases and their importance as precedents as we explore this topic. 
I'm very excited to do that, Michelle, because I think especially Bostock is so important for people to know about because it is in employment law, but it really impacts us. You know, we have tons of employees on college campuses. So sometimes there can be this disconnect of Bostock is over here and that's not necessarily higher ed law. So I'm going to go into some some uh, some intense detail here that I hope is helpful. So these two cases are very important and are positive for the LGBTQIA campus community, at least for now. And I have to put that caveat because law is not necessarily settled in this area. So I'll start with Bostock. So I actually think that one of the most important cases for the rights of LGBTQ students in higher education actually may be an employment discrimination centric case. Bostock. So it's, that's why this is going to take a little bit of setup to explain that. So in the Bostock case in 2020, as you said, the Supreme Court ruled six to three that the three employers that were underneath the umbrella of the case had all violated Title VII by discriminating against gay or transgender employees. So Title VII is about is employment law. So prior to the Bostock ruling, most federal courts did not allow people to bring sexual orientation and gender identity claims under Title VII. They would just throw out the cases. So if you said I was discriminated against for being a lesbian in my um, employment, they would just say that's not covered by Title Title VII, this case is going nowhere. And that was because most courts thought that Title VII, which prohibits sex discrimination, as only about biological sex, so that you could you could say I was discriminated against as a woman, and so I'm bringing a case under Title VII, and that would be heard by the courts. But if you said as a lesbian, it would just be thrown out. But Bostock expanded what courts see at counts counting as sex discrimination. So they said, the Supreme Court said that Title VII does include sexual orientation and gender identity as components of sex. Therefore, employment discrimination related to sexual orientation and gender identity is illegal federally, not just in the state-by-state state patchwork that there had been in the past. So you may have, you know, prior to 2020, you may have been living in a state where you could say, you could bring a case to state level and say it was discriminated against as a lesbian in employment, and they might hear your case, but in the state next door, it might not. So this is a really, really big deal. And so the employment side of Bostock, the ruling was about Title VII, but Title VII and Title IX are often interpreted in parallel. So what changes in Title VII has ripple effects in Title IX. In June 2021, the impact of Bostock started to be felt not only by LGBTQIA employees, but LGBTQIA students. So the U.S. Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights issued guidance that said, we interpret Title IX consistent with Bostock. So they said, I'll quote from them because it's very clear, quote, this notice clarifies that Title IX prohibits discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity, end quote. So the Office of Civil Rights in the Department of Ed was saying, we are having the same interpretation that in education, you cannot discriminate on sexual orientation or gender identity, nor sex. That has material benefit for LGBTQ students right now. So since that was written in 2021, that students could potentially bring cases against their university, against professors, against undergraduates. There haven't been a lot of those since then. It's, it's a lot of cases 
um, since then, but that is a big, big difference. But it is important to note that a different presidential administration could rescind this guidance mm-hmm. in the future. So it was, you know, this administration, the Biden administration said, this is how we're going to interpret it. It means that university leaders, practitioners, general counsel office are, have to stay attuned to what may develop here because the law is not settled. So Bostock is absolutely a watershed case in the area of employment, but it did not definitively resolve whether Title IX will always cover sexuality and gender identity. Only a Supreme Court decision can decisively determine how it should be determined. So it could be that a case works up to the Supreme Court about just this question, and this particular Supreme Court could say, no, we do not think that sex discrimination includes gender identity and sexual orientation. That would be very interesting because, again, Title IX and Title VII get interpreted together. Does that change what Title VII or do we have employment? We have sexual orientation, gender identity are protected, but not in education. So we're in this kind of moment of right now it's net positive for LGBTQI students and employees, but it might not always stay that way. So that's Bostock. Then two months after Bostock was decided, a final decision also came down in the Grimm versus Gloucester County case. And this was in the K-12 realm. I said earlier, I didn't include many, but I had to include Grimm because it was so important. It Its decision signals how transgender college students' rights may be considered in higher ed environments as well. And so similar to the other cases that I talked about in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, at issue was the treatment of a transgender high school student, Gavin Grimm. He'd experienced distress stigma, physical issues stemming from a school board policy that forced him to use a single bathroom that no other students used instead of the boys' restroom. And the the circuit judge's opinion begins with this statement, quote, at the heart of this appeal is whether equal protection and Title IX can protect transgender students from school bathroom policies that prohibit them from affirming their gender. We join a growing consensus of courts in holding that the answer is resoundingly yes, end quote. So the court ruled for Graham and they said it was related to Title IX. So again, Bostock is Title VII, but it has implications for Title IX. Grimm is in high school, but it's saying Title IX does count in this case, that Title IX is is activated in this case. And so this opinion indicates that future cases involving transgender students, whether it be in high schools or whether it be in colleges and universities, it indicates that their right to access facilities that align with their gender identity may use this precedent going forward. Prior to this, so prior to 2020, I mean, this is what kind of blows my mind that just four years ago, LGBTQ students who experienced harassment or discrimination on campus related to their sexual or gender identity basically had few options for recourse. The most feasible would be using their school's internal process, but that process was limited, just is limited to schools that have sexual identity and gender identity in their non-discrimination policies. And I looked this up when I, the last available data was 2021, but only 16% of degree granting higher education institutions have non-discrimination policies that include sexual orientation and gender identity. So 16%. So you really hope you're in those 16% of schools prior to 2020. If you have something just horrific happen related to your sexual orientation or gender identity, you could go to your school, but the rest you couldn't. And maybe you could go to your, you know, your state, if your state has a non-discrimination policy, this is really transformative. As I mentioned, we're still not seeing a ton of cases in the pipeline right now because there's just been this change. But I think it's something we need to be thoughtful about. And I also think, you know, I would like 
people to just care about queer and trans students because of their humanity. But if that's not possible, sometimes you use the law as a cudgel or use the law or liability risk as a rationale. And so this is important fodder on campuses for advocacy, for saying that, oh, no, we need to protect our trans students and their rights to use facilities that align with their gender, because if not, we're going to get sued. So now we can say that four years ago, you know, we couldn't say that that wouldn't hold water. Mm -hmm. I love your energy around this. And as somebody who worked in conduct, who teaches law and ethics, it really is, it's important, but it can be very exciting. You're realistic, but hopeful, you know? And I think I worry that sometimes when we talk about the legal landscape, it's just dread. Yeah, there are still things we need to be cautious of and realistic about, but there is hope too. And so I just, before we move on to the other sections, I just want to acknowledge that. I love yeah. case law, but I know not everybody does. So it's just kind of <laughs> cool to see somebody who's excited about talking about it. Let's talk about the other pieces of your article as well. So you also explore legal issues related to LGBTQIA students and religious expression, as, re as well as suicidality and the special relationship doctrine. So can you talk about each of those? I know that they're complex um, and could each be their own episode, but just to kind of give some highlights about these other pieces in your article. Absolutely. And I'll try to be more concise on these because I felt like the title, you know, Bostock and Grimm just have to have more understanding. Absolutely. That seems like such a huge priority. But yes. So the way that I would explain the tensions related to LGBTQIA students' rights and religious freedom of expression on campus, there's a really interesting pattern where in the 1970s to 90s, there were a bunch of important cases regarding it was mostly gay or gay and bisexual, you know, so different terminology at that time, but those students' rights to free expression on campuses. And it was mostly about being able to have student groups be allowed at all, gay student groups be allowed, and then the student groups to be able to have put on events. And those were overwhelmingly decided for the gay student plaintiffs so that it was usually public schools and where your uh, First Amendment rights are assured. Private schools, it's sort of different. But one example, in 1974, Gay Students Organization of the University of New Hampshire versus Bonner, there was the GSO, the Gay Students Organization, was a recognized student group, but they were told by university leadership they couldn't have social gatherings on campus any longer because they received some anti-gay pressure from the governor to do so. The administration had received that pressure. The students said, hey, we're a student group. We, You can't just shut us down because you feel like it. And they went to court and and they won. And the court said that the student's freedom of expression and association had been violated. So there's, you know, a cluster of cases. Then contemporarily, there's been a number of important cases where religious student groups on campus have used similar rationales to the gay student groups who won those cases in the 1970s to 1990s. So in a number of these cases, the, the case kind of comes down to being between a campus religious group and the university related to both 
religious freedom of the students that are in this religious group and the school's anti-discrimination policies. So give you an example. There was a 2010 case, Christian Legal Society versus Martinez, which was about a campus group, the Christian Legal Society, which is a chapter at UC Hastings College of Law, who said their freedom of expression included being able to determine who could be members of the group. And part of their criteria for people joining the group was that they had to sign a statement of faith that included that the members will, quote, exclude from affiliation anyone who engages in unrepentant homosexual conduct or holds religious convictions different from those in the statement of faith, end quote. UC Hastings said, this goes against our non-discrimination policy. You're essentially saying LGBTQ students can't join and their allies can't join if they're not going to repent. Um, you're you're violating our university non-discrimination policy. And let's also just say here, there are plenty of religious LGBTQIA people at all schools. There's plenty of evangelical LGBTQIA people, Mormon LGBTQIA people, Catholic LGBTQIA people of every single denomination there are queer and trans people. So I think just first, that's important to say that this isn't just about LGBTQ students making a fuss for no reason. There are people who are genuinely seeking out all different kinds of religious spaces on campus and at some schools. The religious groups are saying we should be able to regulate that. Mostly the schools are pushing back, but then sometimes it goes in the school's favor and sometimes not. So in that case, UC Hastings won the case because they were able to clearly show that their non-discrimination policy was being violated. They had an all-commerce policy, which means that all student groups need to be open to all students. So they were able to win that case. But a similar case, 11 years later, it was 2021, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship USA versus the University of Iowa. The University of Iowa lost that case because the court said, the, the details are a little different, but the court said that by deregistering the InterVarsity group, which Iowa said they were doing because the group discriminated against LGBTQIA students, but the court said, no, that's treating InterVarsity unfairly. So it's super complicated and I'm not sure I even did justice to the cases. So I do encourage, this might be the part that I say, read the article about these because there's a lot of examples about specific cases and the decisions have gone in different directions. So sometimes there's been rulings for the religious student group. Sometimes there's been rulings for the college or university that was trying to regulate the group. It's really complex and it's kind of this Venn diagram that's starting to happen of religious student rights, LGBTQ student rights overlap, you know, that they they absolutely both do ha should have freedom of expression and association. But what happens when those freedoms are in conflict? So that's a big area of law. Uh, that is definitely unsettled. And then the special relationship doctrine, essentially what that means is when a college or university is aware that a student is at a risk for a specific harm from themselves or others, the special relationship doctrine comes into play and the school may have a duty to prevent that harm. Classic example is if a professor is taking students on a field trip and they're going to an archaeological site where there's not some barriers on the side and it might be easy to fall, the school has a duty to warn the students and protect the students from harm because it's an educational environment versus if I just went to this archaeological site by myself. No one has a duty to protect me exactly. So what I wanted to look at is how does the special relationship doctrine work when it comes to suicide? So that sometimes schools have been found liable for knowing that a student was suicidal and not being able to do everything they could do to prevent students completed suicide. And so court cases have gone in either direction. Sometimes the family loses the case because there's, you know, most college students are not minors. And so schools 
have to balance students' privacy and what they do or don't want shared with their parents or family members and trying to keep the students safe. What I write about is that due to discrimination, stigma, and other factors, LGBTQIA youth are at an increased risk of suicidality than their heterosexual peers. They're more likely to experience harassment and assault so that there may be a trend of more family members of LGBTQ students who have completed suicide suing schools. There's, again, a lot of nuance where some LGBTQ students don't really want the schools to tell anybody that they're struggling with mental health. They don't. They definitely don't want them telling their families in some cases. So that is an area where a lot of times in the cases you don't know if if the student who has died by suicide is LGBTQ or not. So this area of the article is a little bit more speculative and more of a it's so important to do suicide prevention for all students. And we have to pay special attention to LGBTQIA students and what different kinds of supports that group of students may need that might be different from uh, heterosexual and cisgender students who are experiencing suicidal thoughts. Well, and that leads perfectly into my next question, which is, what do you hope student affairs practitioners can take from this article? What suggestions do you have for them? And I I think when I wrote the question, I put for supporting students, but it's students and colleagues, right? Because it's, to your point earlier, we're not just talking about students, we're talking about employees as well. So what thoughts do you have in terms of that kind of support as a practitioner What should people be doing, reading, be aware of? Yes. The first thing I think is to be aware that the legal landscape is in flux and that it has been in flux for the last 40 years related to LGBTQ students' rights, people's rights. And so just for people to know things are not fixed, we have to pay attention. We have to revise our understandings. We have to know what's happening at our state level and our federal level. We have to know what's changeable by different presidential administrations or not. I think what's important for people to think about in terms of supporting LGBTQIA students is that everybody serves LGBTQI students. Sometimes there's this fallacy that, oh, well, the center will handle that or the gender and sexuality studies faculty will handle that. But LGBTQ students are an important stakeholder group. There are tons and tons of LGBTQI students. And so everyone who is a student affairs practitioner, who is a professor, you are serving LGBTQI students, whether you know it or not. So this idea that, oh, I'm not an expert, So I don't need to know or I'm not going to worry about that, I think is really short sighted and misguided. And that I would say the LGBTQIA students I worked with, they don't need everybody to be an expert, but they need people to be empathetic and thoughtful and proactive. And so it doesn't have to always be you know, perfect, just in the way that if you're, you know, you're not a history professor, but you want to talk to someone about what happened in the past, you don't have to be a history, you know, you do some of your own reading, have a sense of of what's going on. And that's why I think, you know, things like, you know, your podcast, publications that have the student affairs focus, staying up on that is, is really important. And I think for student affairs leaders and practitioners hearing any of this, if any of this sounds like, wait, I had no idea that Title IX shifted. You know that if, if anything is coming up totally new, I think it's doing some more investigation about that area or hearing about, you know, special relationship doctrine, I think is probably more for the legal counsel folks, but religious freedom of expression. And if you work with student organizations at thinking about what does it mean? What do we have in our handbook about 
freedom of expression and association. Are we a public school or are we a private school? Because those are very different in terms of what students' constitutional rights are. So I think just getting curious, talking to colleagues, doing table reads. So taking examples like the, you know, certain court cases. Michelle, you and I were talking about this earlier certain court cases, reading it, what would we do if this happened at our institution? So things that seem relevant, like the, you know, maybe it's the Gay Student Organization of New Hampshire, where there was pressure to shut it down. And what if you are the student org administrator who gets a call, you need to make sure this group doesn't do any activities on campus. What do you do? You know, doing that kind of talking things through, we never know what crisis we're going to get, but there are things that you can do to be prepared for crisis or conflict or challenge by being proactive. Absolutely. This has been great and powerful. And <laughs> I, I hate to ask this, but what else are you working on? I mean, you've got the dissertation thing going, so that probably takes a little bit of time, but how do you hope to build on this work moving forward? Yeah, so my dissertation is now going to be the big thing, so I don't have other articles in the pipeline right now, but sure. I'm going to focus on crisis leadership related to LGBTQIA students on campuses. And there will be some connections to the legal components, but I plan to continue keeping the kind of practitioner-based knowledge forefront. So really, my question is, how do practitioners, uh, how can they be effective leaders and advocates for LGBTQ students, no matter where they're situated in the university? So I have a particular love for folks who work in LGBT centers, women's centers, multicultural centers, because that's kind of the world I came up in. But I'm interested in this question of, we all serve LGBTQ students. How do we be leaders? You know, How do we do more than just the basic, you know, oh, good, I didn't microaggress you. I didn't discriminate against you. You know, that's the ground floor. How do we actually be leaders in terms of serving and advocating for LGBTQ students? And the kind of time point I'm looking at is when there's a crisis, how do we, you know, in residential life, how do we be effective leaders and supporters in communications offices that are writing press releases that are writing to the campuses in campus life offices and president's offices. So that's where I'm going to be working on. I'll probably be doing a case study model. I really think delving in deep in an area can can share a lot. So that's that's what's next for me starting as soon as I get my dissertation committee all confirmed, but uh, it's a coming. <laughs> Best of luck. And you seem to have a pretty well-established track of success. So I suspect you'll be successful in that as well. But keep faith in yourself when you hit the wall because it happens from time to time. Thank you. I'm definitely going to need some cheerleading here and there. <laughs> well, I, my last question before we start to wrap up, is there something else you want to talk about or is there something else you expected me to ask that I didn't? What did I miss? You asked some great questions. I would also just let people know the, how great a bunch of oral history projects are. That's the other thing. So talking about LGBTQ students' experiences on college campuses is also so important to listen to what they say and not only the interpreters, you know, like me, the academics like me. And so one of my passions is listening to oral histories, learning from oral histories. So the, the Making Gay History podcast by Eric Marcus, he had did so many, I mean, just incredible interviews. Sylvia Rivera, he interviewed just tons and tons of important LGBTQ 
activists over the years. And then I worked with folks at both Vassar College and Princeton University to establish oral history projects at both schools where we interview, we train students in oral history methods, and then they interview alums and former staff and faculty. And I know there's other colleges and universities that have oral history projects. I just think they're so fascinating. And it's a way of letting LGBTQ people speak for themselves and give their own narrative. Of of course, I say that and I'm going to be doing research that's interview based. That's not exactly that kind of but I just think oral histories are so valuable. And I haven't quite figured out I'm sure I'll write something at some point using oral history data. But um, I just they're out that you can listen now, especially the Princeton project, we have students who've done a great job of making shorts, short three minute collage of different folks who might share an idea identity or might share a certain time era. So I think those are always really valuable to hear people's experiences in their own words. Wonderful. Thank you so much for this. I know time is a valuable resource and the fact that you were willing to share some with us means a lot. Final question, what's something that is bringing you some hope right now? And it can be related to your work, can be related to life in general. What What is it for you? Definitely spending time with children is an incredible palate cleanser. So I have three um, under the age of seven. And so they always, yeah, just how they conceive of things and the question that they ask just always gives me hope. I also really enjoy this publication called Them. It's an online publication, them.us. It's news and culture through a queer and trans lens. It's, you know, they give the news. So sometimes the news is very depressing, but they, I love when they feature queer and trans youth doing awesome things because there are just so many things across the country that young people are just doing so effectively, bringing attention to being super creative. So I just think it's a great publication. So you can check them out on Instagram. Instagram. You can check them out on their website, but it's, it's queer and trans written, reported, published. I just think it's terrific. Wonderful. Well, thank you again. I really appreciate it. I've enjoyed our conversation and I hope our paths continue to cross. So best of luck as you move to the next phase of your academic work. And I'm excited to read your dissertation when it's done. So thank you, Michelle. It's such a pleasure speaking with you. Really, really appreciate the chance to delve into all this. Yeah, for sure. And again, your enthusiasm, it just, it draws you in as someone to engage in the thinking and the work to be done. So I appreciate it. Today's Essay Today podcast is brought to you by SAXA. We thank them for their support. I'd also like to leave you with a quote today. Ethics is knowing the difference between what you have a right to do and what is right to do. And that is from Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart. My name is Michelle Botcher, and it has been a pleasure to host this episode. Have a beautiful day.